first reading this morning is Psalm 119, verses 49 to 64, and that's on page 437 in your Bibles. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. Uh, if you turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, it's on page 836, uh, we're going to read 1 to 12. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we have told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Paul, if you haven't met before, we're in 1 Thessalonians, so please do keep your Bibles open there. Just another couple of bits of, of uh, notices, uh, it's the Anglican Synod kicks off this week, next two weeks, so please do remember that in your prayers for next two weeks. And, and also, if you know uh, Silvana, uh, who we saw a video about her a few weeks back, uh, she became a Christian a few months ago, and I'm baptizing her uh, on the 19th, so Wednesday the 19th, 
6 p.m. down at Blues Point in the harbour. I'll be baptising her then, so please do come along and support her. Uh, let me pray and look at God's word. Uh, Father, thank you that you've left us the scriptures. Thank you that you've inspired this word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us this morning wonderful truths, that you would implant them deeply in our hearts, in our minds, that we may live a life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name. As I hope you know that the, uh, the way that uh, we live our lives as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, the way that you live your life day by day really does matter. It matters the way that you live. Here, here's a quote on the screen that I love by a guy called David Jackman. He says, the watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism, but it is attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. Let me read that again. The watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism, but it's attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. You see, the people outside this church this morning, they don't hear the excellent music that we sing and they don't hear the sermons that we preach, but what they do see is you. They see people. And what attracts them to the gospel, what attracts them to the Lord Jesus Christ, is when they see people like you and I who are living different lives, godly lives, and lives marked by love. And according to the Apostle Paul, down in verse 12, he says that if we're living our daily lives like this, then we will, we will win the respect they will hold us in high regard because they see that we're living differently. And they'll be amazed at the way that Jesus Christ changes our lives. Let me give you a few examples from this church. I know somebody who has come to this church because they've been impressed by the way that this church has cared for the new mums as the meal rosters are put together for those first six weeks of having a new baby. That has made the gospel very attractive. I know of another person who came to faith because of the integrity of a Christian man in his workplace, and the gospel was very attractive. Uh, the way that we approach our speech, what we talk about, the way that we talk, the honesty in our speech makes the gospel attractive. Uh, our attitude towards social injustice and the way that Christians are seen to have a, a different approach to the injustice in this world that actually makes the gospel very attractive. Uh, when we invite people into our homes and when we share our lives with each other, uh, when we've got a community where, where nobody is lonely, that makes the gospel very attractive. Of course, the opposite is also true. When somebody walked into our, our building for the first time, maybe they'd never been to church before, and the songs are all alien, the Bible is a foreign book, but what they do notice is us, the way that we relate to one another, and the things that we talk about, and the way that we care for each other, and that makes the gospel very attractive. See, it does matter the way that we live. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's not just that you can articulate the gospel. We, we should be known as people who live the gospel, and that's why Paul's letters are full of 
of practical advice as to how to live. You see, that command to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's not just an intellectual love. It's not just believing the right things. It's about changed lives, living differently. And this is Paul's big point from this section. Here it is on the screen. He says, next slide, please. Live a holy life, pleasing to God. Live a holy life, pleasing to God. Look at verse 1 with me. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He's just saying live a life that pleases God. The word for live there is literally the word to walk. Walk a life that's pleasing to God. It's just a great description of your, of your life. You're walking day by day. You're every day taking another step, another journey in, in your walk towards God. He's saying as you live day by day, you're, you're, you'll sometimes have beautiful scenery around you. You'll sometimes have a, a nice, easy life and everything will be going well. And, and sometimes the scenery will be ugly and it, life will be hard. But whether your life is hard or whether your life is good, you're called to live a life, walk a life that is pleasing to God. It's actually an imperative. You must live. We instructed you. It's a command there. And now who's the commanding officer? Verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. We gave instructions, verse 2, by the authority of Jesus. What, what Paul is saying is that when Jesus lived on earth, his attitude, his desires was always to please his heavenly Father. And if you call yourself a follower of Christ, your attitude and your desire should be exactly the same, to live to please your heavenly Father. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to live a holy life that pleases God. So down in verse 7 as well, God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a, a holy life. It's there in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be, you should be sanctified or set apart or, or be different. Uh, lots of people say to me, oh, what's God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? And what they really mean is, what does God want me to do? Does God want me to be a, a lawyer or does God want to be a banker? Does God want me to be in Sydney or in London or does God want me to be married or single? And of course God is concerned about all those things because God is a God of detail. But what is God's will for your life? Verse 3 tells you, it is God's will, God's desire, God's want, if you want, that you should be sanctified, you should be different, you should be set apart for him. Uh, as a, a lawyer, you'll be a, a holy lawyer. As a banker, a holy banker. As a husband, a, a holy husband. As a wife, a holy wife. As a, a parent, a holy parent. In your leisure time, you'll be a holy person. In your money, you'll be holy. Whatever it is, you'll be a holy person set apart for God. It's God's will that you are set apart from him, and you're different. In 1842, there's a book published. This was the title. It was called The Practice of Piety. Directing a Christian how to walk that it may please God. Directing a Christian how to walk it may please God. You know that book was republished 72 times, 72 editions of that book. 
I, I doubt very much that we would read that book today because it's a bit too in your face. Because it, make it makes demands of you how to live differently. But that is what God wants for us. That's what God desires for us. It's what God calls us to do, to live a holy life. Verse 7 again. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a, a holy life, set apart for him. And now why does God demand that of us? God calls us to be holy. Why? He calls us to be holy because he is holy. Remember Leviticus, God says, be holy because I am holy. Uh, 1 Peter 1, be holy because I am holy. What God is saying there is that uh, if you claim to be my child, if you claim to belong to me, then you should act and behave like I am, and I'm holy. My character, my essence is a God of holiness, and so you two should be holy. Now, I find that liberating because God demands that I'm holy, not because of a list of rules to keep, but because he wants me to be like him. He wants me to act in a way that is just like him, and he is holy. And so he calls me to be holy. And what God is saying is that in a world of, of competing voices, where everybody has an opinion on how you should live, make sure that you're listening to, to God's voice. And God is saying, just be like me. I, I do know best, so live a, a different life. And the walk that we're on, friends, is, is like a process. I love Paul's pastoral wisdom in this passage. Look at verse 1 again. He says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. That is a holy life. As in fact you are living. I'm not complaining. I'm not grumbling. You're doing really well. You are being different from the rest of Macedonia. But, verse 1, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. He's saying, there's always another part of your life where you could be living a bit more differently for me. Again, I hope you know that about your Christian life. You can never claim that you've made it. You can never claim to be the perfect Christian because there's always another part of your life where you're not living in a holy, godly way. That's our big point this morning. Live a holy life, pleasing to God. And Paul applies this in two areas. Two areas of life that are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. The first is sex, and the second is the way that we love each other. Sex and relationships. Let's look, about, let's look at sex. Uh, live a holy life pleasing to God in sexual purity. If you're claiming to be a follower of Christ... Your sexuality should be in a holy and honorable way. Verse 3, it is God's will, God's desire that you should be sanctified, set apart and holy. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. Let me just read verses, verse 3 again in the positive. It is God's will that you should be holy. That means you, sh you should actively pursue sexual purity. 
You should learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honorable. Now, you do know God. You're loved by God. You've been bought at a price. You know God, and so you learn to control your lust. Right, see what he's saying? He's saying that, that the, your sexuality, your sex is, is a beautiful thing. Sex is a good gift from a, a good creator. In marriage, that intimacy between one man and one woman, that one fleshness, that expression of love is a beautiful thing. When a husband desires to please his wife and a wife desires to please her husband, it's a beautiful thing. And, and in sex, when there's no selfishness and there's no violence and there's no self-gratification, there's no lust, it's a beautiful thing. I, I know a couple who have been married for 50 years and they talk about it in those 50 years where there's been no emotional unfaithfulness and no physical unfaithfulness. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Sex in the right context is a beautiful thing. But in the wrong context, it's very dangerous. And that's why Paul says in verse 3, avoid sexual immorality. The word is porneia. Not just adultery, it's sexual sin in the widest sense. All sexual acts outside of that one man, one woman marriage relationship. Avoid it. The word is actually stronger than avoid. It's have nothing to do with it. It's don't go near it. Total abstinence. And I know that's diff- difficult, isn't it? It is very difficult in this sexually charged world where you walk down the street and you're bombarded by pornography. I know it's difficult where it's almost embarrassed now to, to be celibate outside of a marriage. You know? I know it's very difficult when we're surrounded by news of adultery all over the place. Even this week, I have counseled three people who have been impacted by the adultery of others. So two ministers, one in Sydney, one outside of Sydney, who've had extramarital affairs, and their congregations are shattered by that. I've sat with three people this week who have been impacted by that. And that's why Paul says avoid it. It's very difficult, but we're called to be different. How are you going to do that? Verse 4 that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust. No lusting. Don't be like the heathens because they don't know God, but you do know God. You've got the Spirit of God living in you. And if you do know God, then you will learn to control your body. It's not natural, but it's the gospel way. The natural way is what pleases me, but, but God's way is actually what pleases God. And so you learn. You make deliberate choices as to how to live your life because you know God. No lusting. Uh, Verse 6 says, no trespassing. Uh, In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Have you seen those signs where it says no trespassing? What that sign means is, this property does not belong to you. So don't go there. And if you choose to step over that boundary and go onto someone else's property, you are trespassing. And Paul is saying the same things here. When, when it comes to sex, if you cross the boundary, if you go beyond what pleases God, you are defrauding somebody else. So with the affair, you are wronging your spouse or you're wronging somebody else's spouse. With your lust and with your fantasies, you are degrading somebody else. 
with selfish sex in marriage, you are wronging your spouse. No lusting, no trespassing, and then no excuses. This is a bit that we don't like. Verse 6 again, the Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. Now, that's not popular, is it? We want to hear, the Lord understands my temptations. But Paul says the Lord will punish men for all such sins. Don't mishear me. I'm not denying God's incredible forgiveness. I'm not denying God's incredible grace. When, when we, we failed or we turned back to Calvary with tears of repentance, of course there's forgiveness. But the warning there is real. God's judgment is real. God hates habitual impurity. John Stott puts it well. He says, God's call is to holiness. God's will is our holiness. God's spirit is a holy spirit, and God's judgment will fall on all unholiness. So living holy lives pleasing to God in the area of sex is one area where the world will notice. When we as a church are encouraging our our married people to be faithful and praying for faithfulness in marriage, people will notice. When when we as a church are encouraging the unmarried to be pure and to be celibate, no flirting, no lusting, the world notice. It's really quite simple, holy and honorable lives in the area of sex. How are you going to do that? Not by rules, not by legalism, but by knowing God more. The more you know the Holy God, the more you love the Holy God, the more that you will want to live to please Him in this area. So live holy lives, pleasing to God in sexual purity. The second area is in the way that we love each other. That comes in verse 9. About brotherly love, brotherly or sisterly love, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. It's kind of like people are talking about the church in Thessalonica. They're saying, those people who gather together in Thessalonica, they're just different. They've got, they have this amazing love for each other. You should go to that place. Like, nobody is lonely and everybody is accepted, and everyone's cared for. It's extraordinary, the love they have for each other. Is that what people are saying about Church by the Bridge? About brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, because <laughs> you've been taught by God to love one another? What do you mean by taught by God to love one another? Remember when, when uh, Jesus was asked, what, what are the greatest commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your, whole, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it starts here in the church, the way that we love each other. It doesn't stop here, but it must start here. What did Jesus say? A new command I give to you, that you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how we've been taught by God. 
God's Spirit has taught us when we came to Christ, not just to love Him, but to love each other. And that's the difference the gospel makes, isn't it? That we end up loving people who are so different from us. That's the mark of holy living, brotherly love. Let me be clear, that word brotherly love in verse 9, it doesn't mean that you never disagree with other people. Brotherly love does not mean that you never point out areas of life that need to be changed. But brotherly love does mean that you have a deep concern for other people. That you're concerned to see them nurtured and cared for and see them living for Jesus. And Paul is a great pastor, isn't he? He says to them, well done. Uh, verse 10, in fact, you do love all the brothers, not just in Thessalonica, but throughout Macedonia. You're incredible lovers. But we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. He said, there's always a, a bit more loving you could do. There's always that other person in church that you could love just a little bit better. And I want to say, as a, as a pastor here, I, I think we are loving each other well. I really do think we love each other well. I, I hear of people giving extraordinary time to other people in this church. I hear of people going around with meals. I hear of people listening and crying and sharing each other's burdens. I hear of people who are of a slightly a different demographic feeling totally welcomed by this church. I want to say well done for the way we love each other. But there's always more loving that we could do. See, church should never be a place where people are lonely. I met a girl at a conference about five years ago who grew up in a synagogue. She was Jewish. And she came to Christ. And I listened to her testimony, and it was extraordinary. And then it was also really sad. Because she, says, she said something like this. She said, but you know, I find church the loneliest place. I've never been so lonely in all my life. And that's extraordinary. Isn't that sad that a church of people who are supposed to love God and love each other, that you can feel lonely in a church? It is sad, but it does happen. You know, we've got our little cliques. This is the sporty group, and this is the new mum group, and this is the older people group, and these are the city workers, and these are the, the rich group. And we can be very exclusive. And church can be one of the loneliest places where you don't feel like you belong. So what should this brotherly love look like in our church? It's got to start with sharing our lives with each other. It's got to start with opening our homes to each other and our families to one another and our burdens and our joys with each other. Brotherly love has got to be a, a selfless love where you give time to somebody else, not what you can get out of it, but what you can give them. It's got to be costly, emotionally costly, emotionally draining, time-consuming. What Jesus said, he said, love your enemies. That's Christian love. Loving people in this church who you feel have wronged you. Love the stranger. Welcome that new person into your life. Love the person who's hard to love, who is so demanding of your time. And loving the person who's so different from you, so different from you, 
but you love them because you're both Christians. That is gospel-centered loving. And no programs and no human organization could create this kind of love. Only the gospel does that. And see, what will attract people to this church? Not the extraordinary music or the extraordinary preaching, but us, our relationships and the way that we love each other. And we can do that more and more and more. And for the Thessalonians, the application is, is, is fascinating. How are they going to show brotherly love? Verse 11, by making it their ambition to lead a quiet life. Literally, to make it their ambition to have no ambition. That's what showing brotherly love is about. It's to stopping the comparisons and stopping the jealousy and just living the simple life. To mind your own business, verse 11. To stop meddling in other people's business. You know those people who feel it's their right to know exactly what's happening in everybody else's life? Not because they care, but because they feel that they need to know. That's not loving each other. And then he says, work hard with your hands. Don't be lazy. Don't sponge off other people in church just because they love you. And I think what Paul is saying here is that the way that you live your life, your ambitions, your attitudes, your actions, it will show whether you really do love each other. If people walk into this church and they see people who are full of bitterness and backbiting and gossiping and lazy and arguing people, the gospel of Christ is not going to be made attractive, is it? But when they see selfless, loving people who are living lives differently, verse 12, your daily life wins the respect of the outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody else. See, that's what the world respects, genuine, godly living marked by sacrificial love. Remember that quote again? The watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism, but it is attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. As a pastor this morning, I'm going to urge you and plead with you to do that more and more to live a holy life, set apart for God, knowing that He is holy and trying to live a life that pleases Him. I, I don't know what your individual struggles really are. I don't know what your individual struggles in terms of sexual purity is, but whatever it is, strive to be different. If you need to talk to somebody, please come and talk to me or to Mark or somebody. But live a different life that's holy and honorable, pleasing to God. And in the way that we love each other, I do pray that this congregation, 945, will be known for the way that we are extraordinary in the way that we show love towards each other. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are pure and set apart and there's no one like you. We want to live as people, as children of, of, of you who reflect your holiness. Father, please would you give us that heart, that mind, that desire and that will to live this different life. Lord, I pray that the way that we conduct our lives in terms of our sexuality and the way that we love each other 
would adorn the gospel, that people would be praising the Lord Jesus Christ in that last day because of the way that we live these different lives. I ask that for his name's sake.